Chapter 5 of The Sacred Herb by Fergus Hume. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mrs. Rover's Masked Ball. It is a long lane that has no turning. Lord Prelice began to believe that there might be some truth in the proverb. For the lengthy lane of idleness, down which he had sauntered for many years, seemed to be rounding the corner to open out into the road of industry. The chance observation of Lady Sophia, which had sent him to the new bailey, had become a signpost, as it were, showing him which way he was to go. In other words, he was now involved in Shepworth's troubles, out of sheer friendship. Ned had confessed that he required assistance, and had turned to his old school chum for the same. Prelice was naturally willing to do what he could towards aiding Ned in extricating Miss Chent from her perilous position, and so found work for his idle brain to do. Of course, as he tried to believe, he could resume his former life when the service was duly rendered. The wedding bells which rang for Mr. and Mrs. Shepworth would dismiss their best man once more to his sauntering. But this, as Prelice began to think, was easier said than done, mainly owing to the looks of Miss Chent. He had not spoken to the girl, and knew her character solely through the evidence of the Grange servants who had been placed in the witness box. Also Ned, as he remembered, had said very little about his affianced wife, and Prelice knew none whom he could question as to the prisoner's qualities. Yet, for all his scanty knowledge, he felt strangely drawn towards the unhappy woman, and confessed inwardly that he would feel a pang on seeing her become Mrs. Shepworth. Without doubt, Prelice was in love, although not head over ears, and he swore at himself for being so disloyal to his friend. Mona, the name slipped quite naturally into his mind, Mona would assuredly be acquitted, unless the missing Agstone appeared, which was extremely unlikely, and then she would as assuredly marry Ned, who had so manfully stood by her in this grave trouble. Therefore it behooved Prelice, as an honorable gentleman, and he was all that, to put her out of his mind, if he wished to continue meeting Shepworth's gaze squarely. And, after all, a peer worth twenty thousand a year could pick and choose almost any woman for his wife. It was hard on Ned that such a peer should play the part of David in the parable and select the less fortunate commoners one ewe lamb. The struggle between more than a liking for Mona and a feeling of genuine friendship for Ned made Prelice waver in determining his future behavior. His first inclination when aware of his feeling, was to cross the channel for a prolonged stay abroad and leave Shepworth to his own devices. Then it occurred to him that this course would be cowardly, and he resolved to remain and help. Nothing that the world could cavil at could ever take place, since Prelice, with his high sense of honor, never dreamed of paying marked attentions to Miss Chent. All the same, if he came often into Mona's company, and that seemed inevitable should he remain, his life's happiness would certainly be at stake. 
he would have his feelings to smother and therefore as he plainly saw would be most unhappy prelice at this early stage of infatuation termed his feelings toward the girl affection but he knew very well that given time and opportunity affection of this sudden kind might easily increase to love in that case seeing how miss chent was engaged to be married he would be vainly crying for the honeymoon his lordship then felt less happy in the evening than he had done in the morning then he had been heart whole now the sight of a beautiful woman in peril had aroused the deepest and most chivalrous feelings of which his nature was capable placed thus between the devil and the deep sea prelice compromised dangerously with his conscience he resolved to crush down his newly born desire for mona and to help ned as best he could in this way did the young man mix fire and snow in the vain hope that such hostile elements would blend common sense should have told him otherwise having so decided although not over pleased with his decision and with good reason prelice dressed for dinner he remembered that he had promised to partake of this agreeable meal at his aunt's a solitary chop at his club would have been preferable as he was disinclined for company but aware from experience that lady sophia would strongly object to an excusing telegram prelice smothered his unwillingness and reached the abode of his relative shortly before eight o'clock lady sophia lived magnificently in bromble square the fourth daughter of a pauper duke she had married a wealthy city man that is she had entered into a social partnership as there was little genuine marital feeling about the union simon haken was a dried-up active atom of humanity with a bald head a pair of piercing dark eyes and an exasperating chuckle which he used when getting the better of any one as he usually scored over less clever financiers he chuckled very often and this sarcastic merriment imparted a somewhat cynical expression to his withered face his wife large and expansive and fresh colored looked like an elephant beside a grasshopper when the two went into society and they were generally known as the mountain and the mouse but haken cared as little for the zest as did lady sophia as husband and wife in its strictest sense they were failures being two and not one as partners they were admirably matched having no children and plenty of money and excellent health and no strong emotions the two enjoyed life immensely possessed of a complacent husband of a good position ample cash and absolute freedom lady sophia even forgot to sigh for the delights of the stone age when she reflected upon the position in life to which it had pleased providence to call her on this occasion mr haken as usual had wired detention in the city on business so lady sophia received her nephew in a solitary drawing-room as handsomely furnished as she was dressed you are just in time for dinner said she with emphasis 
implying thereby that Prelis was usually late. "'I always am in time,' answered the guest, smiling but preoccupied. "'Dinner is a sacred feast which cannot be trifled with. I would as soon insult the king as the cook.' Then he sat and stared at the points of his patent leather boots with the air of a misanthrope. "'You are out of spirits,' declared Lady Sophia, wrapping his knuckles with her lorgnette. "'I prescribe a round of pleasure. Tonight you shall escort me to two dances and four musical parties. But I haven't done anything to deserve such punishment. How absurdly you talk! These festivals—' I agree with the man who said that life would be endurable were it not for its festivals. Nonsense! He could not have been in society. He just was, and so made a profoundly true observation. I'd renounce society and all its play. Besides, added Prelice inconsequently, I am going to a masked ball tonight at Mrs. Dolly Rover's. That woman! cried Lady Sophia with disdain. Prelice looked up, surprised. I thought you liked her. As Constance Newton, not as Mrs. Rover, she informed him swiftly. They are one and the same, he urged. Not at all. Marriage changes a woman into something entirely different. Constance was a charming girl. Mrs. Rover is a flirting, fast-living, heartless, spendthrift society doll society dolly rover murmured prelice noting his aunt's usual waste of adjectives will you come to this ball what lady sophia almost screamed a masked ball and at my age oh how can you be so ridiculous prelice and at mrs rover's too a woman who neglects her husband and squanders his money and whips him like a poodle, I believe. He is something of a poodle, isn't he? That is no reason why he should be whipped, she snapped heatedly. And if you knew how she had treated your friend Mr. Shepworth, you would not go near her disreputable ball. Prelice pricked up his ears, remembering the unnecessary blush of the barrister at midday. How did she treat Shepworth? he asked. How? Can you ask? Of course, seeing that, as a newly returned traveler, I know nothing. Well, then, she was almost engaged to him, and he was very much in love with her. She threw him over in a cold-blooded way, because Dolly Rover came along with a better-filled purse. He's a horrid little cad, added Lady Sophia candidly and his father was a chemist or a draper. I forget which. All the same, he is too good for a jilt, who played blind hooky. Don't raise your eyebrows, Prelice. It's vulgar, but expressive, and I shall use it. Who played blind hooky with poor Mr. Shepworth. But are you sure, Aunt? Ned is engaged to Miss Chent. Out of pique, out of pique, she assured him. Mona is a nice girl, poor darling, even though she did murder her uncle. Not that I believe she did. But Constance is the one love of Mr. Shepworth's life, and fifty Monas won't make up for the loss. Mona, if ever she does become Mrs. Shepworth, 
which I very much doubt, will only be a makeshift. Oh! Freelis was almost too indignant to speak. That so peerless a girl should be talked of as a makeshift seemed positively wicked. You must be mistaken. Ned would not behave so badly. Ask him, then. I shall do this very night. Then you will go to that woman's? Yes, I accepted as I always liked Constance. Besides, I have to see Ned, who lives in these same mansions. I know he does, burst out Lady Sophia. Quite indecent, I call it. Oh, hang it, aunt. A man must live somewhere. Not next door to a woman who has jilted him. He doesn't live next door, but on the floor below. It would be more credible if he lived in Timbuktu. I believe that he loves her still, and she's quite capable of loving him back, in spite of the marriage service, which I don't believe she listened to. As for her husband, Lady Sophia was about to give her opinion of Mr. Dolly Rover, when the butler threw open the door and announced dinner. At once, she took her nephew's arm and changed the conversation. Tell me about the case, she chattered as they passed to the dining room. Have they hanged that poor girl? Who? Miss Chent? No, and I don't believe they will. Ah, Lady Sophia pulled off her gloves. I always said that she was innocent. Of course, if Agstone turns up, she may be convicted. Agstone, oh yes, the man who declares that he saw her kill Sir Oliver. Prelice corrected her while taking his soup. He only saw her bending over the fire with a knife in her hand. Burning the will after killing her uncle. What a horrid girl. Aunt Sophia, will you tell me plainly if you believe Miss Chit to be innocent or guilty? How can I judge when I haven't heard the evidence? You talk as though I were on the jury. I like Mona, and I'm sure she didn't kill him, but if she did, he deserved it, as he was a nasty old bully. Prelis desisted in despair and helped himself to fish. Lady Sophia seemed to change her mind every half minute and never considered facts when she wanted to deliver an opinion. Besides, she preferred fiction as it was less trouble to invent than to remember. All the same, her sympathies appeared to be with Mona, and Prelice felt pleased that it should be so. Should the girl be acquitted, her position would be extremely difficult, and she would require a staunch friend of her own sex. Why should not that friend be Lady Sophia, whose support could do so much to efface the stain of a criminal court? But until the case was decided, Prelice did not dare to hint that such an idea had crossed his mind. As the servants were hovering around the table, he could not talk confidentially to his aunt, so drifted into general conversation about mutual friends. He thus became posted up in the latest Mayfair gossip, and so was brought up to date in necessary knowledge. And Lady Sophia knew as much about London as Asmundius did about Madrid, and like that delightful demon, she could unroof houses to some purpose. Luckily for the men and women about whom she talked, the presence of the butler and two footmen prevented entire candor. 
As the food was excellent and the conversation interesting, not to say necessary, for Prelice as a newly returned traveler required much posting up in recent scandals, nephew and aunt lingered for a considerable time at table. When the meal was ended, Prelice preferred to accompany Lady Sophia to the drawing-room, instead of remaining solitary over Haken's famous port. They had a half an hour left for coffee, and then Lady Sophia would have to start out on her round of festivals. "'You ought to come with me, Prelice,' she said later, as he helped her on with her cloak. "'Everyone thinks that you are dead.' "'Well, Aunt, you would not have much pleasure in taking a corpse about with you. Besides, I promised to look up Ned this evening.' "'No doubt, and he'll be at that woman's ball, most indecent, seeing that poor Mona is in jail.' "'Ned isn't such a blighter,' cried Prelice crossly. "'I never called him a blighter, whatever that may mean,' retorted Lady Sophia with great dignity. "'Mr. Shepworth is an esteemable young man whom you would do well to imitate.' "'I intend to. He and I are going to save Miss Chent.' How horrid! You'll be a kind of detective. Prelis nodded. It's something to do. As if you required anything to do with your rank and money. But I say, Aunt, you advised me this morning. Oh, I never remember anything I say in the morning, said Lady Sophia aridly. You are so stupid, Prelis. You always take one at the foot of a letter. You won't come with me. Oh, very well. Help me into the brougham. You horrid boy, I believe you'll fall in love with Mona and give me a criminal for a niece. This was Lady Sophia's parting shot, and when her motor broom spun towards the first turning out of the square, Prelice laughed long and loudly. His aunt was nearer the truth than she had been the whole evening, although she was far from suspecting it. It never entered her elderly head that a man of the world, such as her nephew certainly was, would fall in love on the spur of the moment. And I should not have suspected myself of such lunacy either, thought his lordship as he turned into the direction of Half Moon Street to procure domino and mass for the ball. The street before Alexander Mansions was filled with carriages and motors and four-wheelers and hansoms, together with a crowd of onlookers who passed remarks, complimentary and otherwise, on the many guests of Mrs. Rover. The mansions themselves were palatial and splendid, with a royal flight of broad marble steps to the main entrance. Prelice, shuffling on his domino and assuming his mask, climbed these to find himself with other revelers in a vast hall, with two staircases ascending on either side at the farther end, and between them two lifts, the cages of which soared and sank with parties of pleasure-seekers. Prelice delivered his rainbow-hued ticket of invitation to a gorgeously uniformed commissionaire and took his time in climbing the long stairs. Many other people did the same instead of waiting for the lifts, but as all were masked and cloaked, the young man could recognize no one. As Shepworth had stated, Mr. and Mrs. Dolly Rover occupied the whole of the third floor. That is, they tenanted two flats which faced each other, and the outer doors of these, opening on to the spacious landing, had been removed from their hinges. 
thus the guests could pass easily from one flat to the other and the landing between was a nest of greenery and roses like the hanging gardens of babylon the flats themselves had wide corridors spacious rooms and lofty ceilings so they were capable of receiving a large number of guests on this occasion they were crowded and it would seem as though mrs rover had invited everyone on her visiting list and there had been others not set down on that list since the masks and dominoes prevented recognition prelice looked about for his hostess but found himself received by a tiny pale-faced man with large plaintive blue eyes set in a white expanse of absolutely colorless skin he wore a domino over his smart evening dress but no mask and was so clipped and curled and brushed and washed that prelice easily guessed him to be the poodle mentioned by lady sophia pushing out a small tightly gloved hand he murmured a nervous greeting to each new arrival but after this ceremony was ended no one seemed to take any notice of him as all who came were masked prelice wondered how mr rover could possibly know whom he was greeting of course there was the rainbow-hued ticket given to the commissionaire below which would guarantee the respectability of the presenter but tickets of this sort could be stolen and forged and as no further supervision was exercised to ensure the identity of the guest prelice considered that such a procedure was somewhat rash his thoughts were confirmed by a dried-up little man who appeared without a mask and who was rebuked by mr rover for his originality you shouldn't you know expostulated the host in a penny whistle kind of voice no one is to know anyone until the clock strikes twelve when we all unmask for supper why even my wife insisted that i should receive in her place she would be spotted you know if she stopped here to shake hands and she doesn't want to be found out until midnight the whole fun of a masquerade lies in secrecy so obey the rules haken and put on your mask prelice started when he heard the name and twisted his neck to see if the newcomer really was his uncle by marriage it was simon haken sure enough for no one could mistake his looks let alone his celebrated chuckle the young man laughed and wondered what haken by no means a society butterfly was doing at the ball of a lady whom his wife openly disliked and then he remembered that lying telegram from the city mr haken had his little secrets it would seem and was more human under the rose than when posing as a money-making machine his dutiful nephew determined before the evening was out to let his sly uncle know that his misdoings were discovered meanwhile the little millionaire was chuckling and masking it is a risk you know rover he observed dryly you don't know who is here half the swell mobsmen of london may have come after diamonds oh dear me how can you talk so haken said the host fretfully the man below examines the tickets as if any one could not forge or steal one retorted haken voicing his nephew's thoughts well in tomorrow's papers i shall look for a criminal scandal and with his odious chuckle haken brushed past prelice toward the ballroom of the left-hand flat his lordship 
tired of watching new arrivals, thought that he also would go and view the revelers. But he had hardly moved half a dozen paces when he unexpectedly began to think of Easter Island. A sweet, heavy perfume, as of tube-roses, was wafted in his nostrils. But why should such a familiar fragrance recall that desolate land, environed by leagues of ocean? End of chapter 5